Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. And actually, I learned recently that this metamorphosis is resisted by the caterpillar's immune system. And so it's not at all straightforward. These imaginal cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a certain point, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Mark Gober, who is an award-winning author of four books. And we met first in Pari in Italy at a Laszlo Institute conference. And his books are all about an end to the upside down. So an end to upside down thinking, an end to upside down living, an end to upside down liberty, and most recently, an end to upside down contact. He's also the podcast host of Where Is My Mind, which has very many episodes on these topics. And he serves on the board of Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell's Institute of Noetic Sciences and also of the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. He was previously a partner at Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley and worked as an investment banking analyst with UBS and is recognized for his work in intellectual property strategy. Uh, He graduated magna cum laude from Princeton and a nice snippet, he was also elected a captain of its Division I tennis team. So Mark, a very active background. And I'm going to go straight into our first area of discussion, which is a a shaping moment involving your change of orientation, your change of work, because obviously it's a very different world you're in now to that of investment banking. Yeah. Well, first of all, David, thank you for inviting me. I never expected to be writing books at all, let alone books on the topic of consciousness and existence. And um, as my background would suggest, my focus was on business. And before that, it was academics and sports, tennis in particular. So I wasn't, uh, maybe in the back of my mind, I had questions about existence, but I hadn't really studied it. And in 2016, there was a shift. That was the the moment for me, even though it's been a gradual process since then, it's sort of like the first domino occurred then when there was a combination of, I would say, life challenges where some things in my professional life and my personal life weren't going the way that I wanted. And I felt like I was on a treadmill where I was trying to accomplish the next thing because that's what my life was about. Even though I didn't know why I was trying to accomplish, I felt like I had to. And I didn't have any meaning behind that because I thought life was meaningless. And I thought when you die, there's that's the end. And we live in a random universe. We can create meaning if we want to, but it's really just a rationalization, an intellectualization because the universe doesn't have meaning. So when you have that kind of a nihilistic attitude combined with life not going the way that I wanted, combined with the fact that I didn't have a really a North Star to guide where I was headed, I was not in a great place. And some would call that a dark night of the soul. At the time, I didn't know that's what it was, but in hindsight, that's what it felt like. And at that time, I started listening to podcasts, actually, mostly on the topics of business and health, and happened to stumble across one. It wasn't even one that I selected. I was listening to a show on health, and the next episode in the queue was a woman who talked about consciousness and psychic phenomena that she had personally experienced. And that led me to then look into the subject more and more, 
I started reading scientific papers and getting more serious about it and realized there was a lot that I was missing from my worldview. And that has led me on this journey. Indeed, what you described there is presumably what you were taught at Princeton in psychology. It's a sort of standard materialistic worldview, which is what our work, of course, is about expanding. Not that it's wrong, but it's just incomplete. And certainly philosophically and existentially, it's it's inadequate. And I suppose, I mean, did you have any mentors at this stage of this transitional stage or were you really sort of rowing your own boat? Well, I felt very alone because most of the people in my immediate network had no idea about these sorts of topics because we came from a similar background. And I started to reach out to people like like psychics and energy healers because I was researching those topics anyway. So I ended up with a group of, of mentors, essentially, who worked in the field and were familiar with this area because I, I didn't realize how many people knew about these things. Now I know there's a well, many, many people, but for me at the time, I was so shocked. So I did have people that sort of guided me and still have people that I, that I talk to as mentors. And that's been important throughout the process. And do, is there any, any piece of advice that, that sort of springs out from, from this process? Or was it sort of more of a gradual one of, of uh, shifting on the basis of your, your reading and discussions? To me, it's always been about the evidence and with research, the evidence base grows and it gets to a point where I was not able to go back to my old worldview because of the quantity and diversity of evidence that I had been exposed to. And if I wanted to be an intellectually honest person, I had to go with a new worldview. So for me, it's been a, a process of learning and then there's an inner work as well with it. But that's, that's been the primary guiding force is that I've wanted to learn to uncover the nature of whatever the truth is, and it continues to lead me down this path. Absolutely. I think, I think what's very important in what you said here is this em- emphasis on the evidence base. We talk about evidence-based spirituality and the post-materialist science of consciousness. And, and I, I think this is the direction of travel, but of course, with huge resistance from the mainstream, which is has most of the funding yes and, and on in, in your in your reading um can you can you identify one or two books that were particularly influential there have been so many but when i think back to those early days when i didn't i was listening to basically anecdotes on podcasts and some scientists as well but thinking back one of the first books i read and it might have been the first actual book this is after hearing many anecdotes was one that is actually not as scientific as some of the other stuff that i've looked at but still has had a big impact on the way i look at life it's a book called your soul's plan by robert schwartz and it's this notion that our our consciousness soul if you want to call it uh, exists before birth and there's an actual selection process of the body that that soul will incarnate into. And what Robert Schwartz did in that book, based on his work using hypnosis to regress people into their past lives, he uh, was finding, like many other people in the field, that this selection process occurs and it occurs so that people can have a targeted learning experience. So they enter a body that might actually enable or encourage suffering to some degree, because that suffering will enable learning. So there will be growth that can come from it. And I'd never thought of life in that way. So that really opened up my mind. That's very interesting. Just this afternoon, I've been 
reviewing a book called Why an Afterlife Obviously Exists by mm. um, Jens Ambertz. And he quotes near-death experiences as saying that the purpose of life is to study, to grow, and to learn. And that seems pretty pretty good summary to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, and and I, I think the what also impressed me, and maybe you're in a similar situation, is really the the coherence and profundity of many of the accounts, particularly of near-death experiences. And they, they carry a kind of authenticity, I think, and an illumination, if you like, that uh, has in a way its own conviction. Is that, that your impression? Yeah, they've been influential for me as well, the near-death experiences, talking to people who had them and then also looking at the research and the fact that credible people like Dr. Bruce Grayson at the University of Virginia study this too. There's a lot of stuff that makes me interested in it, but the conviction in those who have had the experience and the consistency in that conviction across many, many people, that they are transformed, that they had a genuine experience that changed things. And within the near-death experience, what I found to be the most impactful learning is the life review phenomenon, which you talk about in your book. And I quote I you in my, in my yes. book, An End Upside Down Liberty, because it's so important. The people in the life review in the near-death experience become the people that they impacted. So they don't only review the life of their lives from their own perspective, they become other people that they impacted directly and sometimes even indirectly. So it points to our interconnectivity, but it also shows that the things that matter in life based on this higher perspective that we get from the near-death experience, that the little things seem to matter more than what we would consider to be the big things from our earthly lens, like how you treat the cashier in line, that might matter much more in the life review than how much money you made in a certain year, for example. No, quite quite right. I think it points, and I hadn't re- I hadn't really fully realized this in when I wrote that book, which was originally called Hole in One, and 1990, um, that there is really only one mind and one consciousness, uh, as you know, the great physicists like Schrodinger and Planck um, were saying in the 1930s, the 1940s, and it seems we're just we're just catching up with those pioneers in terms of stressing the fundamental importance and even the primacy of consciousness. The, the challenge with what you just said, I agree with you conceptually, is that from our human bodily lens we perceive separation. So in order to believe what you said requires some experience of the oneness or an intellectualization of it, which requires a lot of work to to actually look at all the evidence. And that's one of the big hurdles for our society, I think, is to get over that hump, to, to recognize this reality to which we seem to have an amnesia and a perceptual block. Yes, I, I, in what I call the cosmic game, um, I think that we, that forgetting who you really are is sort of part of the process, and we have to remember and wake up. That's the kind of um, dynamic of the game, um, yeah. if you like. Yeah, it feels and that then, way. What about? Uh, can you think of other key moments of insight um, in your work, uh, which gave you a new perspective into the nature of consciousness? Yeah, my journey has, has seemed to go in stages. It's been six years as of the time that we're speaking. And I feel like there's a long way to go, but a lot's happened within these six years. So I started off with these anomalies, psychic abilities, survival of consciousness, the various points of evidence for that. And that leads one, I think, naturally to looking at the primacy of consciousness, because that's a model, a metaphysical framework that can account and accommodate for many of these phenomena. And then the, the question arises, like, how, how does one live? And that's what I started to look at after looking at those pieces of evidence. So getting into 
spiritual philosophy, if you want to call that non-duality and looking at many different spiritual teachers. So I wouldn't say there's one teacher in particular that shifted my worldview that, because I take bits and pieces from many, but as I think back to a sort of a pivotal phase after looking at post-materialism scientifically was digging into the work of Dr. David Hawkins, who was a practicing psychiatrist and then had a spiritual awakening of his own. So he blended when he was living, he died about a decade ago. Um, he, he blended psychiatric examination of the ego with the experiential reality of these transcendent states. And that was transformative for me to also having a psychology background to look at it from that lens. Yeah, I think his work's extraordinary. And I'm not sure that it's as well known as it should be. His whole power versus force, um, I think, has very important implications for the sort of social or potential for social transformation. The power is the spiritual aspect and the force is the violence, um, which is the, the, the world's military operating system that we are you know, within at the moment. So making this transition is key to our survival, I think. Yes, yes. And to me, the, the transformation starts at the individual level, but then we have to do it all collectively somehow. So it's both the individual and the collective. It is. I mean, one is a reflection of the other. And, and I've just been reading another book on, called Healing Social Divisions by Barry Spivak this afternoon, which is based on the Maharishi work, saying that the, the government sort of represents the, the collective consciousness or collective level of consciousness of the time. And so it all comes back to this need to evolve the general collective consciousness to a higher state. And um, that's really the $64,000 question. How do we, how can we best do that? Yes. Yeah. That's what I think a lot. Of, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And it has to, at some level, start with the individual, because if we want to have to make a positive impact on the collective, then we have to shift because then we become more capable of having an external impact. And then if there is no separation, then the transformation of the individual necessarily will impact the collective on some metaphysical level. Yes, that would be a field effect. It's what Maharishi would call a field effect, which I, I think is very real. And then, how, Mark, how does your understanding of consciousness influence the way you live your life? I think you've, you've hinted at that already because you're looking at the ethical implications of the near-death experience, the life review, uh, and so on. So you probably changed the way that you live your life from when yeah. you were an investment banker. Yes, dramatically so. And it's not like I was living my life unethically before. I actually did care about being a good person and treating people well. I just thought it didn't mean anything. I just, that was my instinct to do it. And so I was blindly, I don't know, like a zombie just going through life because those are, these were the steps that you're supposed to take, knowing that I didn't know why I was taking those steps of let's start an investment banking. And then I worked my way up to becoming a partner at, at my next firm. And now I ended up leaving my, my firm after spending 10 years and becoming a partner, I decided to leave. And this was in the end of 2019. I made that decision to transition out. So my priorities have shifted. I, I think much more about the evolution of consciousness individually and collectively and how I can make contributions to that. Because based on my research so far, it seems that that is the goal of life to some degree. Maybe that's I don't know if I'm complete in saying that the evolution of consciousness is the meaning of life, but I think it's a big part of it. And therefore, the things I'm doing in life need to be in alignment with that. And my old job didn't feel in alignment, even though it seemed very secure. And on the surface, it was a really great job, great colleagues. 
now I'm doing things where I feel this intense alignment. So my life has shifted in that way significantly. That's very interesting because, in fact, I also started off as an investment banker. And I worked for Morgan Grenfell in, in the 1970s. Um, but I soon realized that I was a round peg in a square hole or the other way around. And it just wasn't me. And I asked myself the question, what kind of person do I want to be when I'm 70, which I now am? And the, the immediate answer to that was not an ex-merchant banker. <laughs> and, and I came across a very important book for me at the time, which is called Testimony of Light by Helen Greaves. And this had this sense of what you've been talking about, the, the pattern, the choice of life, the blueprint, which you also find in Plato's Myth of Ur. And the, the blueprint really spoke to me because I could get an intuitive sense. And I've had it on key occasions um, since that time as my life has unfolded, that I'm on track. And I think this, this does that resonate with you, this sense of, of now being on track? Yes, it, it resonates in that I, I feel a, a general direction, but the specifics and the granularity isn't always there. It unfolds. So when I look too far ahead, I really can't see where I'm going to be. But in the moment, the decisions seem much more seamless. Yes. And in, in my case, there were two occasions, one when I got a job at Winchester College and one when I had this key conversation with George Blaker, who ran the network before me. He said, we'd only met 10 minutes before, and he said, you're just the kind of person we're looking for to run the network. And as soon as he said that, I had a kind of recognition um, that, yes, that's right. That's what, I, that's what I should be doing. It took another two or three years to put everything in place. So I think if you look back, um, then you'll probably get the sense of, of a, a natural unfolding but of course, it did mean that you had to make a big decision at the time. Did you come up against um, you know, resistance to your, your decision or were people supportive generally? Generally supportive. And at the time when I left my firm, I didn't know what I was going to be doing next. I didn't know I would write any other books because at the time I didn't have the, the ideas. But interestingly, very soon after I made the decision and spoke with my former business partners, um, and I made the decision I was going to be leaving, then the ideas for my second book started to come in. So it was almost like by releasing that energy, so to speak, I was letting in uh, what might have been blocked. And now three more books have come about. Uh, but but very, I've been fortunate that my friends and family and even my colleagues have all been supportive. Very, That's very good. Uh, tell us a bit about your upside down metaphor, because you've used that in all of your books. Yes. Well, actually, it became about with my first book and end upside down thinking, which I wrote before I had that title. So I wrote the book and reached out to my now agent and uh, publisher, Bill Gladstone of Waterside Productions, who came up with the title and end to upside down thinking after seeing the book. And, and the upside down in that book refers to essentially the placement of consciousness in our metaphysics. And the materialist view is that consciousness comes from matter and more specifically the brain and upside down an end to upside down thinking is saying consciousness is primary and that even matter exists, but it's all within consciousness. So that's the upside down part. And as I've started to learn more and more, I, I'm finding more things that seem to be upside down. So it just seems to make sense to go with it. Yeah. And I think it's also corresponds to a, a transition from an outside in view to an inside out. And, and I think the sort of institutions are, are very much the first, whereas 
spiritual development involves this inside out process. Yes, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but it, it's multi-layered. So I'm, I'm glad that that was the title of the first book. <laughs> and, and, and tell us a, a bit about your, your book on liberty, because this, I think, has been you know, certainly a, an important theme for me uh, over the last two years. Yeah, well, it, it was a transition in some ways to start talking about political and economic theory in the context of some of this more spiritual ethical stuff. And I knew that when I wrote that book, I would probably lose some people who might have agreed with me in my first two books, but there is a divide in society in terms of how people look at political philosophy and what individual rights are. So essentially what I try to do in that book is apply spiritual principles, this notion of the golden rule, to the way in which we organize society. And when I started to examine the way we run governments around the world, which I had never really looked at before. I wasn't a political person until 2020, when we were all sort of forced to look at it much more closely. I realized that the, the basic nature of government violates, to me, what is an essential spiritual principle of the golden rule of wanting to treat people the way that we like to be treated because we're all interconnected. So the structure of government seems to violate that. So the book breaks that down from a traditional political philosophy perspective, from an economic theory perspective, and then tying in the metaphysics at the end. Yes, I, I, I think I've, I've been mulling over, you know, writing another book myself, a short one. You know, I think there are far too many long books. And the starting point has to be metaphysics for me. And yeah. then the, out of the metaphysics comes the ethics, you know, the golden rule. And then out of the ethics should come the politics. But we have, we have this system run on power, money, wealth, and an elite, if you like. Um, and what, uh, as spiritual people, what we are trying to do, at least I'm speaking for myself, is to move more towards a, a system based on love and wisdom, which corresponds to our basic spiritual nature. Yeah, I agree with you. And one of the challenges in navigating that that I've noticed is that one might have that perspective, but then disagree on what the truth is. So one might come from a compassionate intention and inadvertently support something that is deceptive, for example, that actually doesn't lead to something compassionate. So that's where there's, I'm noticing a divide in the spiritual world is defining truth and then applying the spiritual principles from there. Yes. I mean, my, my own approach is you know, from my Bulgarian sage, Peter Dunoff, is is that truth is also a principle. Love is a principle, wisdom is a principle, truth is a principle. It's not a belief system. And a lot of people are still at the stage of needing a kind of framework or belief system. Whereas what, what that's about is how do you enact love? How do you enact wisdom? And how do you enact truth? Mm -hmm. And so it seems very, very powerful to me. So Mark, we're coming, coming to the end and I wanted to ask you whether you have any proverbs or quotes that you live by or anything that struck you in that respect um, you know, since your 2016 uh, transformation. There are many, but one that stands out is Nizar Gadada Maharaj, the Indian sage. He said, life is the supreme guru, meaning that everything that happens to us in our life, we could view it as a learning experience, that it's teaching us something as a guru rather than an individual human being figure, which can be valuable as well. But when we look at life as teaching us something constantly, it changes the 
perspective I found, and it changes the view on suffering even, that when there's something that seems to be a negative event, there is learning that can come from that and also from positive events. Very good. I love it. Um, There was an Irish person, I can't remember who it was now, who said, what is in the way is the way. Mm. No, so that's that's, that's the, the challenges of life. You know, life, life is is this sort of learning opportunity, and I mean, you're you're actually probably the youngest of my guests on imaginal inspirations. But so I don't know whether this last question is an appropriate one. Well, there's any advice you'd give to your younger self? Well, I'm I'm 36 now, so I will think back to myself when I was, I don't know, let's say in college, trying to decide what I was going to do when I graduated, because I went into investment banking simply because that's what other people were doing around me. And I thought it would be a good place to start my career. And the advice I would give would be to to look more at what what I'm passionate about and, and to follow that feeling a bit more rather than what other people think. And what society says, there's there's merit in that too. I'm not saying to completely ignore that, but to follow the passion more than I was doing. No, totally. I I, I completely agree with that. And I mean, so much of what we do um, in our early adulthood is the outcome of social expectation, um, trying to be respectable, trying to be respected and, and approved of by your parents. These are powerful motivations. But I think you, we have to come to this point where we discover our own authentic note, our own authentic self. Yes. And Mark, what's your next book? Have you started well, another one or are you having a pause? It's, it's interesting. I usually don't know I'm going to write a book until I've done a bunch of research and I say, oh, wow, this could be another book. So I just wrote the most recent one, Into Upside Down Contact, which came out about a month ago. Okay. And, um, and that's about aliens and spirits and how they interact with our civilization. Uh, so I'm still doing a lot of interviews around that topic, but I'm I'm, I'm always researching. I'm very curious as to what's happening in the world and this notion of individual liberty and how we structure society and getting to a more compassionate society while also being respectful of individual liberties and things like that. Um, so I don't know if there will be another book. Um, well, I guess we'll have the, to see. <laughs> life will be your teacher, as you said. Yeah. Mark, yes. thank you so much for joining me on Imaginal Inspirations. Thank you for having me. <laughs>